I have the experience of following last Wednesday night's speaker. <laughs> and um, we're going to get back into talking about this subject in Matthew 5, verse 13. You are, this is Jesus talking, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. Talking to his disciples. He wasn't talking to the world, he was talking to his disciples here. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What we're talking about, especially in verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, you are salt to the earth. Well, salt has a taste that's different than the food that it's put on. And its purpose, we've seen, is to first of all be different. Its function operates by being different than whatever food it is put on. And that's why he says, if it loses its flavor, then it loses its value. And the point here he's saying is this, Christians, we are left in this earth for a reason. And the reason, and the church forgets this, we forget this so easily, the reason we're left here is to be different than the world, not like the world. If we're salt, the value that our saltiness has is that we're salty. Did you ever get a cut in your mouth or bite your lip or something like that and eat something with salt on it? You find out where the cut is quickly, don't you? Because the salt, when it hits an open wound, stings. And there are some things in the world that church is supposed to cause, call a, cause a stinging to. Uncomfortable. There are times that, that salt makes something more tasty and more attractive. But the point here is, however it works, in whatever case it is, it works by being different. And Jesus is saying, when the salt loses that difference, it loses its value. He's not talking about whether you go to heaven or not. He's talking about whether you lose your value to Him in what He's called us to do. And I have a very serious concern that the church, and this is something we need to evaluate all our lives on, and this is challenging to me also, have we lost our saltiness? Is the church so much like the world that they can't tell the difference between us and them? As our life, even more than that, what are we endeavoring to be? Are we endeavoring to be like the world and accepted in the world and hold on to our beliefs? Or are we accepting the call that we have, which is to be different? Now, we're all human. None of us wants to be different to the point that we become, you know, ostracized and separated. But there are times it may cost that. We've talked about what it means to be separated, live a separated life. And we discovered that it doesn't mean to be isolated. Isolated and separated aren't the same thing. They may be the same thing, but you can be separated but not isolated. And so in order to be separated doesn't mean you go shave the top of your head and sit on top of a hill in a monastery somewhere and never have any interaction with the world because then how can... That's like keeping the salt in the salt cellar up in the cabinet. What good's it going to do? It's still not doing any good. It's still not affecting the world that's around us. So we discovered... Separated doesn't mean isolated. Then we also discovered separated, do, separated doesn't mean weird. 
Peter writes that we are a peculiar people. That doesn't mean weird. The word peculiar there means different. It means separated, out. And so what we're discovering is what does that mean? We're called to be different. And last time we talked about the essence of what that is. What, what, the reason we're different isn't because we just act different than everybody else. So we're not just supposed to be like, you know, tomorrow night when many people will go out and even some of the kids here and they'll dress up in costumes and pretend they're something they're not. And that's not what this means. This doesn't mean we're supposed to just act a certain way because we're supposed to. And this is why we spent the time last time understanding. We looked at things Jesus said about what made him different. What made him different is he belonged to the Father. What made him different was he was here only to do the Father's will. What made him stand out and rub people the wrong way was he wasn't here to please them, he was here to please his Father. Because he was joined to his Father, because he was one with the Father. And then we saw last time that when we came to Christ, we were joined to him. We were immersed in him, baptized in him. And that identity is now in him. Therefore, that's why we're different. Because if we are acting the way we're supposed to act, we're acting like, the one, we're acting like who we are. So it should not be an effort to be Christ-like. That's who we are. What we've got to do is get the flesh out of the way, which wants to act like who we were. But you have the ability to act like Christ now. That's not something you have to get. You have that nature in you. We need to develop it. And the only way you develop it is by exercising it. But you already have that nature in you now. And we talked earlier this year for quite a long time in Romans 12, too, about we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and we're not to be conformed to this world by the, because the word conform means pressured from the outside to act and talk like the world, even though we're not like the world on the inside. But what we are to do is to be transformed, which means go through this process of making, bringing what's really like on the inside to the outside. And the purpose of that is the end of that verse is to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Is to demonstrate to the world and to the spirit world, it actually says in Ephesians 2, what God's like. That's our assignment here. That's part of the assignment here. And so... So we're not being asked to do something we're not capable of doing. We're actually being told to be like who we already are. But the power to do that is not just in you. It's because we're joined to Christ. And that's what we looked at last time. We're going to begin to look tonight at some obstacles to that, the things that are in our way, because that's really where the rubber hits the road. The rest of its theory is important to understand its background, but this is where we live with these things. This is because all of us, I, especially those of you here tonight, all of us desire to do this. We want to please Him. We want to act like Him. We want to accomplish what we're here to do. But I guarantee you, I venture to say, let's put it that way, that almost all of us, if not all of us, struggle at times with this. That we don't always do this. And we're going to look at some of the obstacles. Begin to look at some of the obstacles tonight. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 15, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's stop there a second. He's talking here about what you love, what your heart has gone out to. Now, a number of years ago, actually, it's more than a number of years ago, and this has not just happened then, there's, it goes through cycles. The church goes, tends to go through cycles. There was a holiness movement, and that started out right, but it became a legalist movement where it was just like under the law, holiness was based on what you look like on the outside. So women had to wear dresses up to here, sleeves out to here, dresses down to here, and their hair up here. And that was holy. They couldn't go out anywhere. They couldn't enjoy anything, basically. If you want to know the bottom rule, if it was fun, it was sin. If it was miserable, it was godly. And that was an effort to be separated from the world. The problem was, it was the outside. It was being made to look outside as if they were holy. And in many cases, it just covered up all kinds of stuff inside that never got dealt with because I felt like I was holy because I wore the holy clothes. I had the holy appearance, so that meant I was holy because that's what people told me. One of the ways to know that that's what you're being told is when you're given a list of do's and don'ts and the don'ts far outnumber the do's. You notice when God set it up in the garden, there were a whole bunch of things they could do, just one thing they couldn't do. In fact, He commanded them to enjoy themselves. He set up a special place just for them to enjoy. So... Being holy doesn't mean we can't enjoy life. Because what kind of witness is that to the world? I don't think I want to know the God you know. And see, if you look at Jesus, He couldn't have been like that because children love being around Him. They don't like being around people that are baptized in pickle juice, as Pastor Sam used to say. They don't like being around people with sour, long faces. They want to be around people that are real. So there must have been something about Jesus that he was fun to be around. And I, you know, I, I mean, in, in, in a, in a, in, but, it, but obviously it would be in a good way. But he lived life. He enjoyed life. In fact, they got upset at him at one point. He says, you know, John the Baptist didn't drink anything. I'm not talking about drinking wine. But, he, you know, he didn't basically, he lived an austere life. And you go to parties. You enjoy yourself. Now, I'm not telling you, you know, I'm not getting into drink or not drink. I'm just saying Jesus was invited to them. So he must not have sat there with a long face looking down his glasses at them like this saying. So what is it? It's not the outside. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about what you're in love with. He's talking about issues of the heart. Because notice what he says. Do not love the world. Now the Greek word for world there is the Greek word cosmos. And the word cosmos means the systems of this world. It means the values of this world. The way the world handles things. The, the, the approach to the world, the value system, the, 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 um, the philosophies of the world, the approach of the world. 
And our, our culture is saturated with that right now. Our news media, our, our entertainment world is saturated with cosmos, with a, an approach to things that's extremely ungodly, that's anti-God. We looked when we were talking about renewing the mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, when it talks about how the mind operates, it says casting down imaginations. And that word is reasonings. And we saw that it means a system of philosophies, a systems of belief, a systems of approaching things that have ultimately as their root to exalt themselves against knowing what God's like. But religion does that too. In fact, it's more dangerous because it sounds godly. It sounds like it's right. It sounds like it's seeking God, but it actually creates a barrier between you and knowing God, having a living relationship with Him. But the church has gone to the other extreme. We've gone to setting aside the outward holiness to saying, well, that's not godliness, that's what holiness. And we've gone to the other side of the road, to the other extreme, and basically says, well, because we're saved by grace, we can just enjoy life, have fun here, do whatever we want to do, because we're saved by grace, and God forgives everything anyway, because He's a loving, forgiving God, He'd never judge anything, and then we're just going to all go to heaven and have a bigger party there. But if the salt loses its saltiness... If the salt loses its saltiness, where is its value? If the church loses its difference. Now don't get hung up on what the difference is at this point. It starts by just accepting the basic principle that we're not here to be like the world. We have to be prepared to be different because we're called to be different. And we'll talk about what that difference is. But it's not you know, baptized in pickle juice. It's not just the way we dress. Now, our dress should be a reflection of certain things. Our dress should be a reflection of certain things. It should be a reflection of what we think of God and honoring God, not just here because we represent Him wherever we go. That doesn't mean you've got to walk around in a suit and a tie everywhere you go. But recognize you're an ambassador for Christ. Not just in here, but on the workplace. How you conduct yourself. People are watching you, whether you realize it or not. People are watching you. Now, I have the experience because of the television program of being places, and people will ask me sometimes, you know, do I see you on television? I had one waiter years ago, a place we used to go. It's not operating anymore, but used to go uh, after church on Sunday kind of regularly. And one time he comes up to us, he says, are you on television? And I just kind of smiled and said, why do you ask? He said, well, you look like a guy that's on television Sunday morning. I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church, and our program is on television. He said, I thought so. He says, before the stores open, the TV's on over the bar, and we gather around and watch you. Now, here's a key. I can't just do that when I'm in public because I'm on television. Because I represent Christ whether I was on television or not. And what I do in public 
ought to be exactly what I do in private or I'm a hypocrite. I'm lying to people. I'm presenting one image in public and a different reality in home. Now that doesn't mean I'm perfect at home. My wife will tell you I'm not. <laughs> Probably the next time she gets up here. <laughs> and I'll admit I'm not perfect at home. But I don't present an image that I'm perfect either. But the point is my value system that I endeavor to have when nobody's looking is the same value system and conduct that I endeavor to have when I'm in public. Why? Because if I'm going to represent Christ, I've got to represent Him in integrity, not just for show. And that should be true whether you're on television or not on television. Because we're all on television. And there is always one who always who's at least tuned in watching you. And it's the God channel. <laughs> all right. So the systems of the world is what he's talking about here. We're not to fall in love with the way the Word talks, the way the Word acts, the way the Word thinks. There are certain things that the church has adopted that are popular in our modern culture, and they become popular in the church. And I don't want to get into them right now, because I don't want to focus on the wrong thing. But kids are doing them, and even adults are now doing some things, because everybody's doing it. We're to be salt to the world, which means we have to be willing to be different. And that's really what this series is about. It's not about all what the differences are. It's are we willing to be different? Because you can know what the differences are to be, but you'll never be that way if you're not, first of all, willing to be salt to the earth. So, John writes, Do not love the world. That doesn't mean we don't get involved in it. doesn't mean you can't watch the news. It doesn't mean that you can't get... But you can't fall in love with it. Now, this is a good night to mention this. I was raised one of five boys. We were throwing baseballs around from the time I could hold anything. I remember my father teaching me how to throw a baseball. We lived, eat, and talked sports growing up. My wife had the blessing of having three boys and one daughter. So she got surrounded with sports all the time. It was sports from one season to the next, and there were some parts of the year when it would be three and four different seasons at the same time, like about now. And I grew up just loving baseball. I just loved baseball. I was the era where we didn't have so much on TV, we listened to it, and something about listening to it, you just really connected with it. And that's a teaching for another time, but... But So my point is this, we moved to Boston in September of 1967. For those of you who are baseball fans, you will remember that's at the height of the impossible dream when the Red Sox went from ignominy to stardom. And we walked right into the middle of it, and I fell in love with them. It became a passion of mine. It came so bad to the point that whenever they would get involved close to the season that they're in now, the post-game, I would get so absorbed in it, I would get nervous for the whole time they were in it. I could hardly eat. I would just get, I, and I, I would get either, I would either, if they won, I couldn't sleep. If they lost, I couldn't sleep. Now, I'm talking about the regular season. I'm talking in the playoffs. It consumed me. 
And a few years ago, I realized, wait a minute. I don't do that about Jesus. I don't do that about the things He shows me or the Word of God. And baseball isn't real. I know it's a real ball and a real bat, but it's a pretend contest. And in this part of the country, and especially with the mixture of fans we have here, there are some rivalries that have developed over the years between one team that's located south of here and another team that's located north of here that can have very strong feelings and emotions about and the shock is to discover that the players don't have the same degree of intensity about that that we do. And they're getting paid for it and we're not. Now, I'm sharing that and it's a good night to do that. I'm sharing that because obviously you've learned to get over some of that. You're here. <laughs> My point is this. I had a problem. I got so involved in it, it affected my production. I couldn't sleep over a baseball game. I had lost my perspective on it. And I had to pull back from it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying baseball. There's nothing wrong with following it. But notice the key word here. It says, do not love. Do not love. And when something has that strong a hold on you that you can't sleep... I mean, when I fell in love with Anita, I couldn't sleep. That's all I thought about. It affected my heart rate. It affected everything in my life. It still does. But that's good. I am to love her that way. But not the things of the world. But you understand, and I don't know why I'm picking on it tonight... But you understand that ultimately what's behind all of that is money. Ultimately now what's behind most of these systems in the world is money that's behind the entertainment industry, which is all sports is today anyway. And what they're doing is they're using your love of that team to make money. And we're giving our heart to that. To the point that some of us can't sleep, some of us have trouble functioning, some of us that's all we can think about. So I had to extricate myself from that. I had to fast it. And even now, I'll check the score afterwards. I won't listen to talk. I used to listen to talk radio. I used to watch it on the news. I could have to turn it on and watch it over and over again. And all I did was stirring it up and up and up. Because let's go over to... Well, let's keep reading here. And then we'll go over to something else. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, or does not come from the Father, but it comes from the world. And here's the ultimate end of it. The world is passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. We're talking about overcoming, we're talking about overcoming the obstacles 
that stand in our way, that keep us back from living a separated life. And the primary one is the love of the world. Not enjoying the world, but the love of the world. Go with me to Matthew 13. I knew this would be popular. Matthew 13 is such a powerful chapter because Jesus talks here about the most important of all the parables that he teaches. And he teaches the parable of the sower, where the, he said the, the, sower, the sower is, his, is the... Um, his father is the husbandman, or the farmer. The seed is the word. And the ground, as we see, is the soil of our heart. And he talks about some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on stony places where there was soil, but there were rocks there, didn't have much dirt, and immediately sprang up, but it, but it didn't last because there was no depth to the earth. And when the sun came up, it withered. The, the roots couldn't go down. Some fell among thorns. That's the one we're going to talk about. And the thorns sprang up. This is verse 7. And choked them. So the, the, the plants grew. The, the roots went down. And the plants grew up. But they didn't produce either any fruit or healthy fruit because other things were growing in the same dirt. Other things were competing in the dirt for the precious nutrients of the soil. Other things were competing in the dirt for the moisture that was necessary for that plant to grow healthy and produce healthy fruit. Other things were competing for what was... It was there. They could grow. So if you looked at the field, you could say, well, yeah, there's corn here. Yes, there's wheat here. But it wasn't mature. It wasn't healthy. It wasn't full of its nutrition in order to produce what it was there to produce. It existed. You could see something... But the real purpose, the real power of it, the real life of it, the real strength of it wasn't there because it had been siphoned off, it had been drawn off by other things that also were growing in that same soil. And then, of course, he says, there's other seed that falls in soil and there's nothing else growing there and it grows up strong and healthy and produces a crop of 30, 60, and 100-fold. And then he goes on to explain what it means and explains that the seed represents the Word of God and the soil, it becomes clear as you study, it represents the heart that the seed is sown in. So the condition of the heart is what makes the difference. So what Jesus is talking about here and what we're going to see he talks about throughout a lot of this is the condition of our heart, which is really what John's talking about there when he says, do not love this world. He's talking about what your heart is set on. It's one thing to enjoy. Now, there's some things we shouldn't be involved with enjoying, but you know what those things are. But it's the condition of our heart. It's what our heart is given to. It's what we've let into our heart to take up space. This is why Proverbs says so and so powerfully to guard your heart with all diligence. Why? Because your heart is the crucial part of you spiritually because out of it grow all the issues, all the fruit, all the crops, all the produce of the of living life, of the life of God. It's dependent on the condition of our heart. And so what we see here 
is Satan knows that, so he tries to do things that affect our hearts also. So let's look over now in verse 21. Verse 22. Now he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. So these are all people that have heard the word, but the, question, the hearing is the sowing. The hearing is what puts the word in your heart. The question is, what's the condition of the heart that receives the word? Now, he who receives the seed among the thorns, so that's the one where the seed's thrown among the thorns, and something grows up, it produces some fruit, but it's not healthy fruit. It's not productive fruit. It's not full of the full life and the full life-giving power of that corn or that wheat. He who hears the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. We could say it another way. He loses his saltiness. So apparently, what Jesus is teaching us here is that there are things that Satan tries to sow in our hearts if he can't keep the Word from getting in. If he can't keep us from having developed some depth of our soil, of our heart, the next thing he's going to try to do is put other things in that soil that competes with the Word so that it siphons off, it draws away life, giving nutrients and life-giving moisture so that it doesn't grow and be healthy. Let's go now to... So let's look at what it is. There are thorns who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world. Turn with me to Matthew 6. While you're turning there, what's deceitful about riches? What's deceitful about riches is that they can ever possibly satisfy the inner needs of the heart. When I practiced law, I worked among many men and women that gave their entire life for just what this is talking about. I remember that as I announced to the big firm in Boston that I was leaving to go to Bible school and that I felt God had called me to go into the ministry, there was a senior partner that I worked with which had a beautiful office, that corner office that overlooked the harbor, Boston Harbor. And I sat in his office. He was a young man. He just happened to have fallen into a wealthy client and brought his status up very quickly in that firm. And I sat there and I shared with him that I was walking away from all of this. And they, they couldn't understand that because all they saw was what I was giving up. They saw what it was costing. I wasn't giving something up. I was choosing something better. And I sat there at his office and tears just welled up in his... I can't tell you the partners that came into my office and started weeping. Because they were bound there. They were prisoners there. They were bound, and, and they saw me, and I'm walking out of it. And what it showed them is somebody could walk out of this. But what bound them there is they had given their heart to things that required that income, 
in order to continue to satisfy that need. But the most telling thing is, I'll never forget it, sitting in his office, and he looks at me, and he looked at this office, and he said, you see this beautiful office I have? You see the gorgeous view that I have and the status I have in this firm? And then he pointed to the three three pictures on his credenza of his three daughters, and he said, that's what this cost me. He lost his family in the process of gaining all this. I'll never forget that as long as I live. I had made the decision early on that I wasn't going to let that happen. And it cost me, I never made partner in that firm until I went to leave, then they offered it to me. People under me made partner because I wouldn't sell my life for what it required because my family had a greater value to me than that profession did. The deceitfulness of riches. These men were bound. I'm talking about people that had money. People had cars, beautiful houses. I was in some of their houses. Gorgeous office. All the things the world had. And they were miserable. They were bound by it to the point that they're in my office with tears coming down. One guy says, I wish I could leave, but I can't. The deceitfulness of riches. doesn't mean riches are bad. It's when our heart, when we love them, when they become the God in our life that satisfies us for what they can buy, the power that they give us, the things that they can buy, and those things, that power becomes what we're looking to and trusting in as our security. The man I've been reading after, George Mueller, you've heard me refer to it, he came to a point in his life where he literally gave up everything. But he knew it as a sacrifice. He gave it up because he wanted to trust literally every day in God to meet his needs. That doesn't mean we're all to do that. That was what was in his heart to do. He never went through a day that he didn't have all his needs met. He came to the end of his life, he didn't have anything except a whole testimony of thousands of children who'd been fed, clothed, lives had been turned around, saved, a testimony that's affecting lives still today, and yet he had no material things when he died, but he had eternal things. Matthew chapter 6, the deceitfulness of riches. We may not finish this tonight. And it's not about the things themselves. And this is what we've got to see. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves break in and steal. And look at this. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. This whole section in here, as is John, 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17, as is Matthew chapter 13, the whole section here is about your heart and what your heart and my heart are given to. Now we're talking about obstacles, obstacles to living a separated life. And the root of all the obstacles ultimately is going to be where your heart is. You've heard me use the example before of when I was in high school and I was the manager of the basketball team. Not the coach, the manager, the guy that picked up the dirty towels. 
But I remember sitting there watching this coach give a lesson on, de- on defense, and you've heard me tell this story before. And he told them this key, which I've, again, I think some of these were for God was using to show me things that I could now use as lessons in life. And he said, when you're defending the guy with the ball, don't look at his eyes, because they can look one way and he can go somewhere else. Don't look at his hands, because he can fake this way and go somewhere else. Don't look at his feet, because he can go this way and then go this way. The one thing he can't fake with is his belly, the center of gravity, because it's where that goes is where he's going to go. And that's true physically. Spiritually, it's your heart and your will. What your heart is given to will determine the direction that you go. What your heart is given to will determine how productive this word can be in your life. What your heart is given to will determine what kind of fruit God can bear through you and how salty He can make you to be by His Spirit. What your heart is given to, and this is why the Bible says in Proverbs that guards your heart with all diligence because out of it grows the fruit, the issues of life. So in here we see some of the key principles that apply to that. First principle is don't begin to treasure the things on this earth. doesn't mean you can't enjoy them. It doesn't mean you can't have them. It's when they begin to have a value to you that approaches being a treasure to you. A treasure is something that you protect. A treasure is something that you hold on to. A treasure is something that you value. A treasure is something that you get value from in terms of who you are. Collectors, you know, the, 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 the reason they do that in many cases is because, it, it, because they're, they're, what, what their, their image of themselves is increased by the things that they own. But I have a newsflash for them. When they die... They all stay here. There's an old expression, I've never seen a U-Haul trailer going behind a hearse. (laughs) The old famous thing of the probate lawyer was, well, how much did he leave? The answer was, all of it. (laughs) I remember that when my father passed on and, 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 and... some good money passed through his hands at different times. And my stepmother sent me a box of what was left for me. And I brought our children. We only had the youngest at home. And I opened the box and I said, this is what your grandfather left. All of his life. And this is it. This is what it amounts to. Don't put your value in the things that you ever have. And if you don't do that, if you don't put your heart in them, then you can enjoy them. But when your heart is given to them, when you love them, you can't truly enjoy them because you spend all your energy protecting them, keeping them, preserving them, defending them. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But you can lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. When neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil or bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If therefore the light that is in you is, dar- is darkness, how great is that darkness? We'll talk about that later. We'll come back to that. Well, what I want you to see is verse 24. No one, no one, no one, not Donald Trump, not Warren Buffett, not Bill Gates, certainly not Steve Jobs. No one, no one, not you, not me, no one, no one can serve two masters. Jesus is saying it's impossible to serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, notice those extremes, or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. And now he gets down to what he's talking about. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon's not just riches, it's the things of the earth. Do not love the world or the things of the world. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For where your treasure is, this is why, that's where your heart will be also. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Which am I serving? Since I can't serve both, I'm serving one or the other. So we know if I'm serving one, I'm not serving the other. Now that doesn't mean we don't love God. We're talking about what our life is devoted to. And this is the key. We're going to look at others, but this is the key, the root of the obstacles that stand in our way. When we want to be salty, when we want to be different, when we want to be like God, it's the things that are, have a hold of our heart that have been sown in our heart either by the enemy or by the world, which is always trying to sow things in your heart. Why? Because if it can sow it in your heart, it can get you to go online and buy it. If it can sow it in your heart, it can get you to desire. I've been very cautious, as try, even some things I've talked to my wife about. Maybe a, a, a perfectly innocent television program, but I'm watching. What are they doing here? They're setting up a situation where they get your heart invested in that program so you want to come back and watch it next week. Why? Because then they can sell you their product next week. And keep in mind, all of that is pretend. Everything, except documentaries, and sometimes they are. All the entertainment we watch is all pretend. It's not real. So we live in a society that's indoctrinating us 24 hours a day with things that are not real. And there's a message behind that, which is the world's message, and we're not to love that. It's very hard to live a separated life immersed in the systems of the world. Very hard. In fact, it's probably impossible. Now, I'm not telling you to throw your TV sets out. I'm not telling you to go, you know, not watch the Red Sox when you go home. We're talking about that real issue, which is just to begin to ask myself, 
God's been doing this with me, examining. Where is your heart? What else is in your heart besides me? What else competes for your time? What else competes for your energy? What else competes for your affection? What else competes for it? Because anything else that's first above him is affecting the fruit in my life. We'll stop here and we'll begin to pick up here the next time. Father, help us through the power of your Spirit to let him begin to examine our lives, our hearts especially, that we would find out as you do that what our hearts are given to. Thank you, Lord, that there, according to your word, is thou, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But because you're a Father who loves us, you will correct us. You will show us what the truth is so that we have an opportunity and then you give us the ability to change whatever it is that we need to change. But help us to begin by just seeing where we really are right now and recognizing where our hearts are and what is in our hearts and help us to prepare for what you have for us to come. In Jesus' name.